Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 57. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how'd they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I sit down with Scott Atkinson. Scott is currently in his eighth year of teaching biotechnology at Greater New Bedford Regional Vocational Technical High School in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Scott has been involved with implementing aspects of the Amgen Biotech experience at his school. More recently, Scott has been part of the team of teachers who are designing lab exchange pathways for virtual lab experiences, as well as assisting in teaching videos to explain a variety of concepts in molecular biology. He transitioned from working in a research laboratory to science education in 2000. Scott received his BS degree in biology and marine biology from the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth and his MS degree in biology from the University of New Orleans. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Nice to nice to have you. We were together during the summer for a few weeks. Absolutely, it was. Uh, I thought a great great couple of weeks. Really, uh, very different, very challenging. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we had we had a, a good time there, uh, hanging out at Harvard this summer. So, how's your uh, school year going? We're we're like a month and a half in. It's like it's real now. It is real now. It's funny how quickly you go from I got this triage mode, I think, you know, um, but uh, it's, it's going along smoothly. I actually uh, picked up my first four Amgen labs last week from uh, Hege and MBL, so things, things are chugging along as I had hoped they would, so. Nice. And yourself? How's your year started? Yeah, it's going. It's off to a pretty good start. It's a it's a kind of hectic year with my schedule the way it is. But um, yeah, I'm I'm lining up to. I think a month from now I'll go in and find Dahlia in Harvard and start picking up some of my <laughs> some of my MGen labs uh, from the right. Har- Harvard drop off. But yeah, I know it's real. I had my uh, my first parent meeting uh, t- this afternoon. Um, so. Uh, and you know we're getting into one test down, and I've got my first group of students getting ready for test two, and they're coming in. And can I get extra help? And you know, so we're definitely into a the reality of the school year is hit, and uh, people are making their adjustments. But um, yeah, it's it's been a good year so far. Excellent. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the question I like to start off everybody on, which is, uh, you know, how did you become a science teacher? Um, I know what you did before teaching was that you worked in a research lab, but what led the transition from being somebody who is researching back into the classroom or into the classroom in your case? Uh, well, I had teaching experience um, in graduate school. I had a teaching. I had a teaching assistantship, mm-hmm. and so they had this. It was kind of fun. This. Um, their version of teaching when you arrived at school, they basically would just send you up to the board and tell you to teach about any biological topic you wanted, and then they would <laughs> film you, critique the film until you, you know, presented something reasonable and send you on your way. But I did, you know, I did do that for a couple of years, and um, my wife and I were living in Wisconsin. I was working at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, we had our first child. We're both from this area. And so it was during the Clinton years, and the economy was crazy. So we just figured if we were ever going to be able to move, you know, back home with the family and the child. So 
we we basically we both quit our jobs and moved back here and uh I applied for um some teaching positions as well as research positions and uh a teaching position came up first <laughs> and I, I guess I should um point out I did you know I'd flown back here I think it was like in April I came back for a weekend and I took the test oh. or um I just in one day I did the um <laughs> I flew on a Friday night, stayed with my parents, and I took the math test for the the life for biology and for the you know the gen the uh, English one. Okay. I just did the whole thing in a day, and then flew back <laughs> the next Sunday so that I so I had a provisional license, and um, I, I wound up with a uh, teaching job. Um, you know that that was the first thing that came up. So uh, it was at Westport High School, oh. and. Um, yeah, so it was, it was kind of funny, um, and we, we weren't going to, they were going to close the interviews before we actually even got here, but <laughs> it was my only real lead, so I talked to the principal about waiting, you know, just another day or two, and uh, I took my suit off the back of a moving truck that I had driven from Wisconsin in front of my parents' house and went to the interview, but um, yeah, and then I, I re- really thought about going back to research, but I figured this is good. You know, I've got a little family here, some income, give me a chance to look around. And that was um, in 2000. <laughs> so, Blink of an eye yeah. and the next thing you know, it's... Yep, uh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is, 18 you know, years worked later. Out, worked out well, right, right. Yeah. I, I briefly lived in uh, in Somers- I lived in Westport when I uh, my second year teaching I taught in Somerset uh, right down in that oh, area. Oh no kidding! Yeah. yeah, it was it was not a good yeah. fit. Um, I was not uh, <laughs> I was not well suited to be down there. Um, it was too far away from my entire support network, um, which yep. was either in Western Mass or in the Boston area. And um, I had the greatest landlords in the world, the nicest people. I lived in a like a little apartment above a uh, above somebody's garage. It was a great little apartment. I had the sweetest landlords ever, but I had to get a lot closer to, uh, to all my people and <laughs> come back up towards Boston, um, after that it, year. It's, yeah, it's, it's true. Especially once the kids come along to you, like you mentioned the support network, you really need that for, uh, for the young ones. Yeah, I think so. I would have been okay if I actually had been down there with a family. Um, it's just a, I grew up in a in a college town where you know coffee shops are open to midnight and that sort of thing. Right. It's, it's just a it was a very different. Um, you know, it's a very blue collar. You know, Fall River, New Bedford's a lot more blue collar than oh, a college absolutely. town. And um, yeah, didn't really mesh with sort of you know who who yeah. I was at twenty three. Um, yep. It probably meshed better with who I was at like 27, 28. I probably would have done a lot better down there um, at that time. But uh, so you moved in and you moved into that area at a at an older age, you know, settling in, looking to buy a house, you know, live down there. I think that was probably a little easier of a transition than had you gone, you know, you know, really young, really oh, young. It would have been hard. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you go down there and you're at Westport, but you're not still at Westport. So you transition from Westport into a right. into a Vogue Tech. Yep, I was at Westport for 11 years, um, and then uh, I left there for actually the opportunity to start um, a biotech program at Vogue. 
Uh, was that was my um, campaign promise, if you will. <laughs> they had gotten a grant and some equipment, didn't really know what to do with it. And I um, I used to teach the Sea Labs uh, program in New Bedford mm-hmm. in the summer, and there was a fellow teacher there who knew, you know, they were looking for someone with biotech experience, and so. Um, yeah, so 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 they hired me to, um, to to put some of the stuff they had to use, and um, so that's how uh, you know I got going with the program. It started basically with I, I really had two sections, one on each cycle, and um, I had actually set up this demo. The governor was coming through, <laughs> and they needed to have like the equipment out, so I kind of set it up. People didn't really know what to do with it, so I set it up as if it would be, you know. <laughs> this walkthrough i wasn't even it wasn't even in my uh, i didn't even have a room at the time actually it was a floater so it wasn't in my room but i i set it up for that demo and then um you know got a couple of sections going and and, and over the last uh, this is the second my second or third year i believe where um no it's my third year right where this is all i've taught now so um so I just I have four sections, eight sections total of biotech. So our, our school runs in cycles. Yeah. So we have six day cycles, and um, so I have four sections on each cycle. So I, have, I think two hundred nineteen students this that's, year. That's crazy, two hundred nineteen. All right, so we got to get into this. Yeah. We got to get into this whole cycles business and how this works. So you're at Evoke Tech, and I'm I'm curious about this because you definitely you drop some of these conversations and these numbers of over 200 students, and that you see them for these six day cycles. And so, like, you've got these two cycles, and in each cycle, you've got four different classes. If I understand this right. Correct. And then, so yep. you'll have those kids that are in like, I, I, do you have like an A or a B or a one and a two? Is that how? What, how's the nomenclature work? Yeah. So I just, I mean, you can, yeah, right. So it's, it's, uh, they call the, they still call them blocks, the school or periods, but yeah, I, I, I set it up as it's periods one through six, and it's a true rotation. Okay. So each each day moves moves a class. So you have every class every day six times at a different time over over a six day period. Yeah, and then and those so, those kids then after those six days they like go and disappear and a whole new group they come go in. To shop, so they disappear to shop. And so say you were in automotive, you would you would be in automotive shop all day for six days. So they work it so that on one cycle, say the sophomores and seniors are in shop, and the freshmen and juniors are in academics. And then they switch sides of the school for six days. And and so for that shop, then it's uh, seniors and sophomores and academics, and then the freshmen and juniors are in shop. So that way, at any given time, um, the shop side's full and the academic side is full just with kids from different shops. So does that mean that from like a and and you teach a biotechnology class? So I mean I don't know how your assessment works. If it's, I mean, do you have like you, you still have lots of traditional tests and quizzes, or is it more, you know, application? I do not, and 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 that's been um, I I don't. Um, it's been kind of non-traditional from the get-go, and then that's been by design. My boss has really let me sort of experiment with. Um, with the whole assessment um, picture, basically, and I'm still kind of really <laughs> trying out different things each year. But um, I, I, because of the nature of the class, um, they're seniors. Um, a lot of them don't really need it to graduate, um, but it's um, a skill. You know, it's, I, I think uh, certainly still an important um, 
important part of our society. So um, I've tried to uh, set up a framework that's, you know, based on um, a participation initiative effort, things uh, over the traditional quizzes. And um, I I do a lot. I do some a lot of I do a lot of pre and, and post stuff, but most of their grade comes from their lab notebook, which, you know, mm-hmm. I, I basically what I call trying to keep a professional lab notebook. And I have a rubric that they get for basically their their performance. They get a, a lab grade every day, basically, okay. um, based on, you know, putting equipment away, taking it. So at eight stations, everything is labeled like which sink you belong at, which, you know, table, which um, bench, cabinets or set up you know uniformly so my my classroom is set so they can put 30 students in there at a time um and, and they do, so, and they come close uh, to that <laughs> they do know they it's, i have sections of 30 yeah. um it's, yeah it's not 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 uncommon and so yeah that can get a little hairy even for you know room um you know physical space um and things like that start to start to get a little uh it's a big room but it still starts to become an issue so um yeah so i've tried some non non traditional approaches um in terms of just sheer repetition and kind of learning by doing mm. um more than the the traditional quiz thing but so far my um results have been pretty good i i um I've had kids do pretty pretty well on the post assessments without much anything in between. So we have three trimesters, and I'll give them one per trimester, and um, they 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 do okay without really doing anything else for the most part in terms of you know quizzes, you know, cycle tests, things like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about like the kinds of things you do. So it sounds like I, I guess your classes are about an hour long. Is that is that right? Correct. So, so, so they're an hour long. And the other thing for me, which is it makes the Amgen um, program so important. But if you think we only meet ninety times mm-hmm. for the year, so I, I do the same thing basically twice a year. Um, uh-huh. And so, 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 so we have a smaller curriculum. So the the Amgen, you know, curriculum makes up the labs I get from them makes up a, a big part of. of of our curriculum, which is really what makes it um, our, our department budget would not support me doing this. You yeah. know what I mean? If the I, school yeah. had to pay, especially yeah. for this number of students, there's just no way. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so this makes it a, a tenable situation, basically. Yeah. So it seems like you probably spend, I would imagine you almost spend like in a whole six day cycle, like on a lap, like most of the time, like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're preloading it. You're talking about the techniques. You're Absolutely. talking about those things. You're sort of building up to a crescendo to execute one of these labs, and you have just enough time to squeeze them in. And sometimes I would imagine you even have to like you have to break it up. Like they run it, and then you're like yeah. taking the plasmids and you're like throwing them in the freezer, and you're like, all right, see you guys in a week and a half, and we'll uh, run ab- it again. Absolutely, no, absolutely. Um, and I was concerned because, uh, and this is the second year, uh, last year they just started it. Previously, we had a block schedule. It was 90 minutes. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and the, the cycle was nine days long. Oh, okay. And 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 so that gave me a lot more time. So I was concerned, particularly about losing the three days with mm-hmm. with some of the lab sequences. But you're absolutely right. I've been able to find cutoff points and things like that. Um, like we can't really pour and run a gel in the same day. No. Which is fine because once I get them trained, pouring for them to pour themselves a gel doesn't take very long. Gets them up, breaks up the class a little bit. We talk about, as you you know said, we talk about um, either some theory or strategies for what we're going to do with the gel. That kind of you know what's going in there, why we're doing it, that that kind of stuff. Um, so it does allow me like some lab time. Some some classes it's the whole sixty minutes, mm-hmm. and other classes part of it's you know lab exercise and. Part Part of it is, um, uh, you know, lecture basically um, wow. about, you know, about, about something like, for instance, I have six um, pipetting labs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have a whole cycle of pipetting. Really, it runs into the second cycle because the first couple of days and you have to go through safety and sort of administrative stuff. We don't get into too much. But um, I spend a lot of time pipetting because of the sheer number of kids I can't often get to you in a class of 30 before you might have already made a lethal <laughs> pipetting error. Um, so so I, I spend a lot of time front-loading front that uh, as well. Um, so I'm wondering but, a little bit about the differentiation in terms of, of grades. Is it like when if I sign up for your biotech class and I'm in the freshman cohort, um, is it a, can I come back to you as a sophomore and take a biotech class that's different or would I have to wait till my no, junior year or only seniors? Right. And I've really been, I, I've been trying to, um, to move it back to juniors also so I could have some seniors for independent study yeah. as well. And we'll have to see how that goes. But it's, I think more, it's, it's just an issue because of the, the nature of the school. Our students have related while they're in academic as well. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, you have the state required English, maths, um, and then those sorts of courses that they have to get in. So, um, yeah, so, so they're, they're, they're sort of limited as to where they could put it and when they could take it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, but but we have uh, environmental science as a shop, um, dental, medical, uh, engineering, and uh, legal and protective services. Uh, there are a number of shops where the, the course itself really lends itself to the field that the students are going into. Oh, so, so, like for instance, the DNA fingerprint that we do is really popular with the, you know the kids that I have in legal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a nice thing for them to do and see going into, you know, comparing with you know, actual fingerprints. And um, so I, I feel that it, it, it works out well. It attracts a lot of those students because uh, I think they know that that's going to be something they're going to see going forward. Yeah. And I'm curious. So you say this, but the seniors do get a differentiation right now. Like, yeah, right. So we, I have, I have two sections of honors biotech, one on each cycle. Mm hmm. So those kids, um, you know, they get um, very, very specific detail mm-hmm. um, and, um, and and more labs, a faster pace, whereas the, the uh, college prep basically, yeah, it's much more, it's very, you know, I have some, some students in there on the very, very, very low end, and that's why it's... Um, I, I keep uh, a lot of it in terms of the notebook and the, and the participation and effort for those kids. I can make it more of a skills-based grade, yeah, and, and, and not as much on the cognitive end. 
Um, and that last 20% I have basically set aside for like a pre and post test, some articles and questions that go with different articles and things like that where you would need to demonstrate um, with some understanding of what what was done for um you know, for anything better than an 80, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, so, uh, you know, that kind of, I think levels the playing field a little bit for, for, for some of the kids. And, um, yeah, I, I try and teach it in a way it's been tough, but you, you, you try and teach it in a way so you don't bury kids, but you also provide enough detail for the kids that can handle it. Yeah, it almost sounds like I mean, if, if that you were makes to, any sense. yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I, I was wondering if it like it almost makes sense though, where you're saying you like to have some of that independent study for some of those older kids. It's almost like you want a a, a biotech shop kind of you know the kind of thing where they could dive deep, right? Yeah, if I yeah, understand your shop, explored, right? The school has explored that. Um, the thing with the shops are um, there's there's only fifteen. Um, kids in a shop generally for uh, each each year so that would you know put it down to 60 uh you need more teachers mm-hmm. and then there's the infrastructure <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's quite yeah, it's, it's it's quite an undertaking and the other problem is apparently with the um because we did look into this for a number of years but uh, i guess one of the rules with the doe with the chapter i guess it's the chapter 74 they call it, the license for the shop teachers and everything but you're not allowed as a school to create a new shop unless all your others are at capacity Oh, okay. Because the way this the way the state sees it is you're just creating more empty seats someplace else. Okay. That makes sense. So right, so so not all of our shops are at capacity, so it's probably not something that, you know, is gonna happen for us in the in, in any time in the near future. Yeah. Just given space and you know, everything else. The other problem with it, to be honest with you too, is the school committee when they look at shops, they also want to see like what are, what are your options for a job upon graduating the school, not graduating college. Uh-huh. You know, because we are a vocational school, you know, we offer plumbing, diesel, you know, yeah. um, the traditional carpentry, electrical. So the, the, one of the issues that biotech has is, of course, there's no high school certification, basically, that would, you know, offer you any sort of entry level position anywhere. Yeah, um, It's still just going to be a college preparatory type thing, you know, yeah. so, so that's kind of a drawback in terms of getting funding, basically, to, to yeah. open one up. Um in our area. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious where that comes down the line, because I do feel like they're, you know, I think of some of the the community colleges that do some biotech cert stuff and and some of that stuff. Right. And, you know, maybe it's a, you know, maybe your, your shop, you know, the way we're talking about shop, and maybe that's not the right avenue. But I definitely feel like there's an appetite for something along those lines. Um, oh, know. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how that sort of plays out. I think where how vocational education in Massachusetts, like where it is five to ten years from now, it'll be interesting. I feel like it it ebbs and flows, and and there may be an opportunity sometime soon where you know maybe there's a revisiting of you know what is you know what are we doing for students who don't want to go on to college after school and uh, you know after they graduate high school and you know what are we providing them for opportunities? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So, so one of the things that you do that's interesting that that I brought up, and I, I actually talked a little bit. I talked about like this project with three or four other people who weren't you, and I'm like, I should talk to Scott about this. But you have it, this this zebrafish module. So like you have this interesting classroom project involving zebrafish. And I know I heard you a few times during the summer that say that said something like, you know, the two most important industries on the South Shore are biotech and fishing. And we don't talk about them at all with our kids. But <laughs> you, right. you do you do both of them. You do biotech and you do zebrafish. So I, I'm curious, how did you start like the zebrafish model with your kids and, and sort of how is this developing in your curriculum? Maybe what is this zebrafish model? Uh, but let's start at the beginning. How'd you start this? Um, I started it, I was, I was in a program for six years. It was called NSF Teach, which is National Science Foundation Teach. So it was a six-year teaching fellowship that I got uh, through the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, um, which is our local, 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 local university. And, um, we were, you know, we took a lot of courses, and uh, like I said, it was it was six years. It was a big commitment. Um, came with a generous stipend, and they paid for all of our courses and everything. So I took a bioengineering class one mm-hmm. summer, <laughs> and the professor who I, I was just it was one of the best classes I've ever taken was uh, Tracy Ferreira, and um, we read an embryology, a medical school embryology textbook, some li- a lot of literature papers, and um, she used in her class this zebrafish as a model, um, as a model organism. And so that was really sort of my first, um, you know, first realization of, you know, how, how great this could be with students. And, um, she was really, really, uh, just wonderful, friendly. And so when the the course was over, I had, you know, talked to her, she had shown us, you know, her lab and the grad's lab and everything like that. She's offered me all, she gives me all kinds of advice. Um, I can get different phenotypes if I need them, if I want to breed a certain phenotype. Um, she's just willing to provide them. She's given me uh, food for the larvae before and things like that. I wasn't quite sure mm-hmm. at first before they're, um, you know, it's, it's a really early developmental stage. Is how, you know, she taught me how to properly feed them and things like that. So I, I, I picked it up um, from there. And then there's a, a paper um, published that's, uh, oh, I should have written it down, sparking <laughs> uh, sparking interest in a new generation of scientists. I believe Daniel Rario in the K-12 classroom. So it's, it's right along those lines. I'm yeah. sorry. It's that I, guy. I should have been better prepared. Yeah, it's that um, guy from the DC Friends uh, school, and all, it's all the zebrafish mod- models. I'll definitely put it in my show notes. Um, right. Yeah. Right, and there's eight labs in there. So I've used uh, a lot of the uh, reagents and then ideas from there as well. Um, and so I, it's uh, it's great, I think, because uh, for me, number one, it's a sustainable. Um, the other thing is, is that it has a huge, um, huge interest in the kids. Um, they they really really take a lot of interest in watching the the, the eggs develop. I was really shocked um, at the engagement level, to be honest with you. Um, the, in, which which is good and bad because it, it starts out really engaged, but they have to learn a certain amount of embryology before <laughs> you can disrupt any genes and look at what's wrong, you know. And they start to oh, I've seen enough fish, right? It's like yeah, you know, we haven't uh, we haven't done an experiment yet, you know, kind of thing sometimes. But, um, but, uh, so, so that, yeah, 
for that reason, um, it's it's been very successful. Um, and, and I think it's one of the reasons that the, the program um, in general has grown. The kids use their phones to film and, and take a lot of pictures of them. If I get really good pictures, the students will airdrop them off my phone, off their phones to me in class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, they they actually put them out on social media and things like that, you know, so I, I, it's, it's like an expected part of the class now, basically. Um, but it's also a nice way to introduce some um, animal models, you know, there are the pros and cons of them in science, you know, you can easily see how, you know, easily they're a house, generate eggs, things like that. They have, you know, all the hallmark features of, of a good animal model, um, so, so that goes really well, and uh, I, I they they tie in really well with human anatomy and, and development also. So, um, I I don't know if you've seen on um, the first nine and a half weeks, mm-hmm. um, yeah, PBS documentary. So often, a lot of the days we will see. Um, I will show them the human equivalent in a section from that after we've watched it in the fish that day. Wow. And and so they get to see the human analog, you know, within the same class, kind of. We'll spend a half an hour observing the embryos. They'll observe their embryos, and then I will, you know, put that on for the last 15 or 20 minutes and show them a section like, okay, here here's the human equivalent. And, you know, sort of point out that the fish does in a week or so what, you know, <laughs> it takes us nine months to do, which is, you know, gives you a lot of potential, you know, run reps, basically. Um, in experiments and, and such, so um, that uh, that's worked out well. All right, we got uh, we got a lot to unpack in this. So let's let's start with the ethics and that. And um, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, uh, you know, these are are vertebrates, and and I'm not sure how many states have this, but Massachusetts has a very specific rule about yes. doing any experiments on vertebrates. In fact, it, it's banned. So um, I know we talked a little bit about this summer, but uh, sort of where the where is the like magical line where you're able to play around with these genetic phenotypes of these fish in spite of the fact that they're vertebrates? Right. So my, my understanding, that's a great question. Uh, my understanding is that they are ver- not considered vertebrates until day five. Hmm. Um, in the larval stage, because they they don't have um, uh, you know they 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 don't have any um, um, spinal cord development, and so it's okay to do some sort of a treatment as long as it's within the first five days post fertilization, um, and then everything after that has to be observation. In the reality, if um, everything really any kind of a treatment. Um, is usually done within two to three hours post-fertilization. And so, and you are right about, you know, um, and and I I tried uh, lithium chloride um, one year. um, And people, it's interesting, some of the feedback I've gotten from different people. I I ran into a guy who does frogs with even younger kids, does Anapis labius, and he uses lithium chloride. And I said it doesn't, you know, freak the kids out because it's the title of it is in a tale of the headless embryo. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I did that one year, and the kids were kind of disturbed. And it's funny, I, I talked to this uh, gentleman who runs a uh, Amgen like program in Pennsylvania, and he said, "Nope, you should just keep plowing through like the stuff you know <laughs> that they have to see." Is, uh, so um, one of the things I do like to do is um, ethanol, 
yeah. uh, because that um, disrupts the, the sonic hedgehog genes and it you know can induce fetal alcohol syndrome, but it doesn't you know um, it doesn't result in the death of the, the embryo. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other one that I've really been, to be honest, uh, sticking with is that one, and then is really just switching the temperatures at which they develop. Yeah. And talking about how environment controls, you know, uh, controls um, controls uh, the expression of genes, and, and just using temperature as a real obvious thing. So it's a nice way of them to... Uh, observe differences and you know to learn the embryology and observe differences um in, in something is in, you know in something basic like temperature and then we move on to the ethanol which is just a 10 minute treatment two hours post fertilization and it just changes the uh, if, if it goes well it just changes the uh facial and cranial structure formation you know the shape but that that's really about it so yeah. um it it doesn't result in the death of any of them, and wow. so. And I imagine your your um, kids your kids have a, um, I mean, not as strong as when you did lithium chloride, but still a strong reaction at watching these developmental changes. I imagine. Ab- absolutely, um, they do absolutely, and but I think for the population, well, I, I guess probably any population, but <laughs> our, our population too. I. I I think to the uh, the ethanol lab, it, it just sends a nice message, um, you know, for young women going out into the world. Like this, the petri dish is basically the same as Twilight Time. You know, with that show, it's no different than the womb for this. And anything you put in there is going to have an impact on 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 the growth of this organism. Um, it's interesting because I'm glad that I took this bioengineering course after having my own kids because <laughs> the, the professor actually has uh, she tells all of her students if you are uh, sexually active you should be taking prenatal vitamins because of so many things can go wrong in the first month that you're pregnant before you you would even know yeah. and um you know and in, in, in the course itself it shows you know some of the you know some, some serious serious issues so um, I, I think it's a nice message um, from that standpoint as well to a lot of the students that, yeah. you know, their, their behavior counts and, you know, showing them out. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the if, if you could find um, nicotine gene interactions as well and then maybe, you know, use some of the, the e-cigarette nicotine. Um, yeah, that's, in you know, I've done nicotine with Daphnia before. I haven't. I'll have to try that. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Play around because I, de- I definitely could see. I, you know, I'm sure somebody, you know, somebody knows about those gene interactions. Like you have the alcohol sonic hedgehog. I'm curious what what nicotine receptors will what have. Nicotine, and, right, yeah, right. So that's, that would be another wonderful way, yeah, to utilize them without anyone getting. Uh, yeah, but yeah, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And then the students, they do, they they they, they develop sort of an emotion. You know, they name them, and mm-hmm. you know, like I said, they pass them around on social media and things. <laughs> we actually wound up at um, Tufts Medical Center. I took 20 kids there. They have a 2,000 tank facility there with zebra wow. uh, fish with scoliosis with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but it was a four. It was a former uh, graduate evoke not of my class but before i even got there who was doing a phd at tufts 
that saw one of the kids' pictures and said, oh, I wish you had those when I was there. You want to bring some, and invited me to bring bring some kids. So 20 of us went, went, went to Tufts and mm-hmm. checked out their facility. It was, it was, so that was, you know, a great, great experience. And then really a nice tie in that year for the kids. But um, cool. All right. So then the one other question I have about the system is like, you know, what does your classroom look like? Do I like I have ten thousand uh, zebrafish tanks like all over like every bench space? Not cover? at all. No, I I actually have three. Three. I, mean, I have three ten gallon tanks. Uh-huh. And so so what I do is um, I I have three ten gallon tanks. There's a guy down the hall that has a couple, but um, basically. Um, I have males in one tank, females in another, and then the third tank, uh, I keep the temperature up higher. They're on a day and night cycle, so uh, 14-hour days, 10-hour nights, and then the light coming on induces them. That breeding tank, so the third tank I use for, for breeding the larvae. And then the kids for, for quite a while can raise them uh, right in Petri dishes that have egg water. They change the water so they, they get a labeled Petri dish that they use. I, I use a, it's interesting how much use I get out of cafeteria trays in a biotech <laughs> class. But um, so I have, you know, um, trays of gels, trays of all kinds of stuff. So um, they, you know, by class, I put their their larvae on um, on dishes, and they look for the formation of a mouse, and when we can feed them. And um, so, yeah, so it's 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 not too bad. I'd, I'd love to. I want to get a grant to have the standard rack system. You know, I have more oh, yeah. of your 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 standard in home aquaria, but I'd I'd like to get a rack uh, a rack system someday. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm definitely, it's on my agenda to come down. I mean, it's so far away. I know that, you know, my friends who teach out in those like big square states in the middle of the country would laugh that I think it's really far away to get from where I live down to where you are. But man, you know, it would take me like a, it, a couple hours. <laughs> it does. It, it's not the miles. It's just the track, you know, Boston. Yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. But it, yeah, it def- really is. I definitely have to get down there because I, I have not been thrilled. We use the mouse as our our vertebrate model organism in AP to like explain that. But you can't do anything with mice because like you basically I do a, like right. a, I do a, I have like a choice chamber behavior and you know the kids can hold them and they can do that, but they can't really they can't really do anything with them. And so the idea of of this and then especially with the, the concept of temperature and climate change and and some of the other impacts i i'm very intrigued by yeah by and, this. and in bio so for biotech it's not i could probably still do it but uh the melanocyte system is the same as in humans and so they have a yeah. lab where you can actually put them in a tank with a white background and a tank with a black background and the students can watch their uh, melanocyte distribution change over time as well uh, um, which I would do if I had, you know, a, a strictly, a, um, you know, a bio, but whereas I, I, I just use them for, for part of the year. Um, I, I don't, don't get some time to do that, but I, I do appreciate the nicotine idea. Um, I probably told you too about my honey project. I've got a kid working on that. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited, uh, senior in environmental science. So we're looking mm-hmm. for a way to, um, to get uh, DNA out of uh, honey, out of uh, unpasteurized honey. <laughs> and um, I had seen a thing in Geographic about the diversity of uh, honey made by city flowers versus rural flowers. 
And interestingly, most people I ask predict it's going to be, you know, the rural flowers and sweet country land, and it's actually, you know, Boston, New York City. I think <laughs> Boston, they said there were like 400 and some odd different plants found in a single honey. Yeah, they got a forage. So it turn, right. So it, so it turns out because no one's using pesticides and planting all kinds of exotic flowers, the bees are doing, the city bees are doing much better than the country bees, basically. Um, and because of the pesticides and, you know, just rows and rows of corn and things like that, you find you're finding much less diversity in, in, in the, um, in the honey, in the, in the country, in the country populations and then in the honey made by the country populations. And, and then what's really fascinates me is that the, um, the PCR developed for this was actually developed by the food industry mm -hmm. because it turns out that monofloral honey, I learned, is much more valuable than um, polyfloral honey. <laughs> and people would, would job, I can't remember, there's some crazy term for it, but basically would sit around and sift through the honey looking at the pollen grains all day to make sure there was only one in, you know, in the monofloral honey, which is supposed to be tastier and healthier and, and, and everything. So it was the, the PCR was actually developed for that. <laughs> Somebody, um, somebody who quicker, worked in a, a QC lab. Yeah. Tell if you had genuine honey, right? But it has, you know, the, the problem with the most of the current protocols is that they um, they require 50 ml conical tubes, and then most of them clean um, phenol chloroform. So oh, yeah. um, do I don't have a centrifuge for the 50 ml conicals, and I couldn't use a, you know a, a pick extraction in, in high school <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But I've I've been able to find, um, so I've got a student who's working. There's one they use beads, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to break up the pollen and, um, and a DNA wizard kit. And so um, I have an environmental science senior who, for her senior project, um, and she's going to use some of the equipment from biotech, but she's working on seeing if we can scale the protocol down to... Um, you know, 1.5 ml size tubes, and um, and and gets gets some workable results with um, without using you know with using you know compound safe safe for high school kids. Yeah, that sounds so, awesome. Sounds like a project to team up with uh, our good friend Todd Ryan on. Um, oh, absolutely! I talked to him about this right over the summer. I was yeah. talking to him about this, and there's so many schools. They call it meta barcoding, basically. Yeah. Um, is it right? As, as you're aware, is the technical term. But um, yeah, there's so many schools that have uh, that have hives. Uh, you know, it's on, on the campuses and, and as part of the curriculum. And we're, we're actually trying to work on getting one on the roof. We have a greenhouse at Oak, and we want to put a hive outside the greenhouse so students can walk into the greenhouse and, and view the bees mm -hmm. while they're, you know, out at a safe distance on the roof. And so if I could get some protocols together, um, you know, they they could analyze the um, analyze the content, you know, the genetic contents of the honey. I I think this would you know, it would be a fun fun lab for, for the students to do. So yeah, well, that sounds like one a very my, very cool project. Yeah, you know, one of my uh, yep, one of my dreams, I guess, if you will. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think you're you're diving into my my final like content question, which is like you sort of already answered it, but so maybe you don't have anything else. But you know, in the upcoming years, what are you looking for, uh, looking forward to in your in your classroom? Well, that and my my other pet project 
is the um the Arduinos. Oh yeah. Um you know the the mini PCR machines basically that come with the uh ADE kits. Um through that same program I was telling you about the STEM program that I was in we we had we took a course I didn't wasn't really familiar with them but we took a course that involved um you know we had to do a project with an Arduino and I quickly realized like wow these are mini pieces this is just this just a modified, like this is, you know, a modified mini PCR machine here. This is great. So, um, and so I, I got a grant with a physics teacher for 60 Arduinos. And it's great because um, he's much better versed at the code and everything <laughs> than I am after, you know, a single course. But um, so he's helped me out a lot. But um, so I've developed a, a unit where the kids actually build a model PCR machine and program it before they actually see the um, the mini PCR, the thermocyclers. And it allows me to spend a little more time on, you know, um, denature, you know, the three cycles, denaturation, extension, you know, annealing and such. And um, their importance. And also I, I start them with a picture of, you know, the old water bath thermocyclers <laughs> yeah. and then show them some of the possibilities today and then a reverse engineered sort of mini PCR. And, um, well, one of the, one of the great things for me was, um, the one of the things I, I like, I like, I wish there was a biological analog, but you know, you teach them a couple lines of code, how to, how to make a light light up and a buzzer ring. And, um, it's immediately empowering, you know, they're <laughs> off to the races basically, uh, very quickly. And so that aspect of it, um, I actually had, I know it's out of 200 kids, but I had five students who I know last year at the end of that unit ended up buying their own, uh, <laughs> their own Arduino kits. And, uh, so I thought that was cool, you know, and kind of for the same reason that I fell into them as I didn't know they were there and someone showed me. So. <laughs> um yeah it can make it turning on some lights for some kids to to code that's absolutely well that and i think um yeah i, I think it's going to be the wave of the future i i, I think future future scientists are going to need a little bit of uh t you know the kids consider themselves technologically savvy because of all the apps they use <laughs> and i i like to try and point out that you know there's um you know, there's a lot more to it than that, basically, but not as bad as you think, maybe, you yeah. know, and um, so for some of them, it's a nice segue into, you know, where does this equipment come from? Um, yeah. Yeah, very cool. All right. Yeah. So uh, we've talked, uh, we talked a lot about you in the classroom. Before we get to questions and picks, um, uh, what do you like to do when you're not in the classroom and you're not like, you know, wrestling bears or, or doing other adventurous things out there in the world? Yeah, my, my, <laughs> I guess my, my two big hobbies, I like to cycle, um, you know, bicycle, you know, I have, um, mostly road, I have a mountain bike, but I don't ride it much anymore. And my, uh, my, uh, little getting a little old for that kind of a beating <laughs> in the woods so I, I stick to the roads mostly now and uh play hockey uh, in, the, in the winter um, my son calls it old man hockey <laughs> but um you know I'll play a couple couple times a week um but those are a couple biggies i picked up uh when learning how to play the guitar the last couple of years which has been uh dreadfully harder than i had hoped <laughs> but i'm uh you know yeah not, I'm not. I'm not turning back now. So I just keep plugging along. 
Uh, you or um, you could just leave it like I did. Like I just have left my guitar out, like sitting over on the side, and now my eleven-year-old picks it up and he plays it. And I'm like, if he decides to spend like a good three days, I know he'll be better than me at it, because um, <laughs> he's got much better musical talent than I do. Oh, absolutely! It's, it's horrifying, actually. <laughs> um, how, 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 yeah, how how quickly people uh, uh, kids pick stuff up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds pretty good. That's a you don't seem too stressed. I've for having over two hundred kids and all the stuff that you're doing, you seem pretty uh, pretty relaxed. It's yeah, it's it's um I'm lucky the school is about fifteen minutes away, so I and, and I have access to the building so I can kinda of go in and out when I need to, you know, square things away. So that makes things and a lot of it is yeah, it's just um logistics you know once you get all the all, all that stuff down as you know you know it's, it can be tough kids you do a dna extraction and you know three kids are absent you know um <laughs> you know and that depends on two more labs you, you're from more than familiar with all of those kinds of headaches and stuff so once you get a system worked out for all that it's it's um it's not so bad yeah. um all right before we get to picks of the episode do you have any uh, questions for me Yes, yeah, so I, that's. Um, I I would love to know where you see yourself um, down the road. If you see yourself uh, staying in the classroom or moving on to more uh, <laughs> lab development technologies type uh, type of a career. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely. Uh, I don't see myself getting out of the classroom anytime in the in the next you know dozen years or so. Uh, that would be. I would say I'm there, but at the same time, I also think. You know, lab development is a huge part of the way I teach. Um, yeah. So for me, like having, I pretty much always have, and I, I probably should pare it down, but I almost always have like two or three like lab series projects that I'm working on every single year. And I probably should get it down to like one or two and just like right. really get those down. But I end up taking on a little bit more, you know, I agree into a couple too many projects with people and, and that sort of thing. So I should just get it down to one or two every year. But I, I it's actually been the, you know, you sort of transition that to say like I would do one or the other, but I actually think it's, I do lab development and technology development because of my classroom connection. And I think it'd probably be harder to do it if I wasn't mm -hmm. as connected into the classroom. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now, I, so what's what would what, what would your ideal lab be if you could develop? You know. Yeah, I think so. Change oh here it is. What's your dream? Uh, you know. Yeah, dream I get, invention for the classroom. I've got a couple of them right now, and um, some of the some of this is going to get pie in the sky, and we don't have the technology on it. But I think the perfect lab for me would be something where the students could observe something. Um, you know, some biological process, you know, in the classroom. And I don't really care what the underlying thing is, but something that's sort of sufficiently complicated. So, like, I like our animal behavior labs that we have where the, the students can observe some sort of phenotype or some sort of behavior, that sort of thing. And then what they could do is they could, as part of learning that initial baseline lab, go from the organism, get down to the molecular level, do some PCR find some specific genes that are associated with that baseline behavior so that maybe they could observe sort of two different phenotypes and then get down and get some some pictures of that and ultimately maybe even getting down to the the DNA sequence level which is what I say I can't do in the classroom I have to send that out right now and while it's gotten right. cheaper that's better 
Um, it's getting better, and it's definitely got to the point. And then what I'd like them to do is be able to come back and then run some labs to see if they can get changes either at the population level, um, really, I think, on the population level, and see if they could make some shifts in the population level of those organisms or expose them to something else and then see how things can work out. And I've got a couple of lab series that are kind of in this this vein where they do some initial observations and then we go deep down into molecular and then I come back out and we revisit the system. And then the students ask a question about that system. And then they iterate on that process where, you know, maybe it's a case where it's a situation where there's a, you know, a phenotypic difference between these two groups and we do some initial genes and they go, well, wait a minute, what about these other genes? What happens in these other genes? And so now they have to figure out some different molecular probes and they can then reiterate the lab. And now instead of doing the first lab they did, they can repeat the experiment or do some different, you know, behavioral type things or environmental type things and then search for some different genes, ones that they had asked the questions about. Or maybe they look at, um, you know, complementary receptors or something, you know, something different like that. Or they see if they can shift the population and see if they can get a shift in allele frequency uh, by exposing them to a few generations of something. Um, so I think ideally I'd like that idea of I think a lot of my molecular labs sort of go in a single line. Um, but I don't feel like I feel like with the molecular labs, I'm controlling too many other questions and I don't come back and let the kids really ask their own independent question and then follow that molecular right. through. And, you know, in the labs I do this with, I'm just like just the, the technology is not just not that good. And the time lag is huge. Like we can't get PCR, you know, gel run the sequences, get it all. And it just takes us forever to do that. And it's very bulky right. and not manageable. So if I could get some of that stuff more in-house, um, yeah. you know, all I want is a nanopore. I don't think that's too, too much to ask. Um, I think that's my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's sort of where I would like to go. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like it's come a lot way in the last five, six years. Um, I don't know if you've ever done Wolbachia project. I feel like you might've, um, I have, I had to drop that because of the sheer number of kids I have. Yeah. When we had a block schedule, I would have a hundred kids over two cycles. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So um, it wasn't. Yeah, and even then, it was very difficult to keep track of all the bugs and DNA. But now it's just not really, um, yeah. not really practical yeah. with that number of kids. So yeah. you can you can envision doing something like Wabakia, where like they go out and they do that baseline and they follow through. And so for people who don't know. Wabaki is where you go out and collect insects and then the students classify, you know, figure them out to the order level and then they grind them up and they extract DNA and they amplify the um, endosymbiotic bacteria that's found in somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of all insects, along with uh, amplifying a certain gene in the insects. And then when they um, amplify that, they run a gel for confirmation and they can set it out for sequencing to find out, you know, like what strain of Wabaki it is if they in fact find Wabakia. But then, like, so for me, the the question would be, all right, so we do that, and I do it in a whole bunch of different groups, and we do all these different types of insects, and then, like, what if we came back, and then the students go, all right, well, we found Wabakia in this guy, these guys found Wabakia in this group of ants, and this group over here didn't find Wabakia in this group of ants, well, well what, what's the difference between them? Is it because of the ants' types? So maybe we want to go out and collect ants from all over campus, or was it just total luck of the draw? If we were to repeat this and collect ants, like, you know, 200 ants or ants of different castes 
of a type would right. we get it is it different in the spring than it is in the fall like you can start to envision like these either longitudinal studies or studies that would you know just be more authentic questions from the students and maybe Absolutely. they're even building off of the other kids you know what other kids have done in the past um yeah so I think there's a little bit of databasing I have to do. I feel like I'm still in that experimental figuring out what the techniques are that are possible in the high school. But I feel like we're just starting to turn a corner yeah. that I'd like to get to, you know, get it so that I'm not asking all of the molecular questions and that the kids are asking the molecular questions and then I am right. helping facilitate those tools. Um, nice. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's get to picks of the episodes. I'll see, Scott, if you remember what your pick of the episode is that we came up with an hour ago, which I said, don't worry, I'll write it down. You know, I do. It's a rabies on the brain. Yeah. Um, so they're, right, they're using um, engineered forms of the uh, rabies virus to, uh, to map brain, brain circuits. Um, and so the, this is, um, I, I think, also uh, really... Um, I think it's going to, I'm, I'm hoping I can translate this uh, for students well enough that it becomes exciting just because it's using, you know, the whole, and maybe a quick clip from Cujo or something to start it <laughs> out. But the, uh, you know, the idea of how the rabies, it's a nice way to tie in what rabies actually does to the brain. Um, and then show how, you know, biotech is basically harnessing this to, you know, have certain pathways light up. Um, they've been able to control how far, um, you know, how far the pathway goes and um, basically create a, a rather precise way of, of mapping mapping neural circuitry using using a modified version of the virus. So I, I, uh, I've i been um, working on that this week. It's in um, Scientific American um, in the October issue, in the October issue for, uh, yeah. I think that'd be a pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think I'm pretty. I think it'd be pretty exciting to see you bring up Cujo uh, as the opening <laughs> to that. It's a it's a it's a good hook, you know, the family <laughs> in the car and stuff. If I can pull that out, that's got to pull them in for a couple minutes. But uh, yeah, because I mean, there's a section of the article that actually starts off from bite to brain. Wow. You know, that just goes through right what the what the rabies virus does in a typical day is. I think really. Um, is, is is really I think could be made um, made quite interesting for students, and then how the you know that that that's been um, modified into something something positive. It's pretty um, cool. It's, oh. it's, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. All right, all right. So my pick of the episode is um, from the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a Science in the Classroom website. And this is a collection of annotated research papers and some accompanying teaching materials. Um, and I, I like to bring primary research in whenever possible um, to my classroom. And um, I found that uh, over and over I've been like, you know, rather than Google searching, you know, like a picture or an image or something like that, I've been liking, I wanted to get some actual data sets um, to show concepts in my class, uh, particularly this year. Like, I just feel like 
I want some like real article data, like some data that comes from a publication and that may be a little complicated, that's a little hard. And again, this is more for my AP kids, but I actually found yeah. that I stumbled across this website, the Science in the Classroom website on AAAS, and um, they actually have some resources that make some like relevant news stories rather than relying on sort of the popular news story that's out there. Um, they give like, here's the original journal article and here's some additional background and here's some teaching connections. So um, it's, it's a neat site that's got some, I definitely think it's one of those things that when you go to it, um, it, it sparks, it'll spark some thoughts. And, you know, just when I brought it up, like the first page, bringing up what we talked about earlier, it says there's a climate change collection. And the first thing is bumblebees can't take the heat, won't leave the kitchen. And it's all about, you know, it's an article that really has this paper on the climate change impact on bumblebees uh, converge across continents. And then they've got all of these topics, you know, including some earth and environmental science some ecology. They give you the abstract. They give um, some infographics. Um, they, they then break down the report itself. They show you some data tables from it. So there's a lot of uh, cool things. And then there's some graphs that show some trends. Uh, that go in there. And again, they're messy, messy data. They're like, you know, kind of data you get in a journal article. So uh, especially for kids who you want to stretch a little bit, I think these are, these are some neat, messy things, but they're also unpacked a little bit so that right. you can make some meaning out of that. Um, and I don't know, for me, especially with the kids I teach, you know, the, the honors level kid, um, it, it's going to challenge them a little bit more than, you know, pulling a, you know, a, a, a common, you know, like a headline, a science brief, perhaps, um, you know, it's, which is neat, but it's not, it's not meaty enough. This is, this is complicated. I could give, I, we could get a full period out of looking at just a couple of these graphs and making some meaning and stumbling through, um, and over more and more, this is the kind of stuff I want my kids to struggle through. Uh, not the simple, but the, the messy data and, um, you know, a little bit of confusion, but then talking about like, well, then how do we know this connects to our underlying scientific understanding? So uh, I thought it was a cool site and it's got definitely some resources that I'm going to, I'm going to be diving into in the next few weeks. Oh, thank you. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, and it's funny, I love the messy data idea. You know, we had talked about it this summer and stuff about a lot of the labs and things we do with the <laughs> students being a little too canned and too predictable yeah. for them to just be able to see that the uh, <laughs> the publishing world is not quite as neat and uh, tidy as uh, one might suspect from the general news publications. Yeah, I can remember some people working on a, working on a video where they were putting together some graphs and... Um, and I think the simple thing would have been just to like go and edit it, you know, edit the picture and edit the image and modify it. But they're like, yeah, but that's not what the data looks like when you run this gel. Um, and, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so yeah. we were going back and forth and we talked a little bit. And I know that, uh, that you were involved in one of those videos where you were looking at the me messy data and rather than giving the canned view that like, oh, you run your gels and you get these perfect bands every time. Perfect line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, were, we were talking about the fact that it's important to present it that, no, this is actually what it looks like. So. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me on this. Uh, let me just qu 
quickly run through my credits. Uh, people can support my episodes by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, Patreons are invited into a Slack community where I give early release from my episodes. Uh, you also will get uh, shared some information from John Darko and from David Kanofsky, who is up and posting on a regular basis now. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can get show notes in addition to on my Patreon page. You can get them at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. I don't think I could find you on Scott when I uh, when I looked on Twitter. Um, I don't think you were there. No, I've got to get myself an account. I have to say. No, um, you might just I'm you might have just recluse. Yeah, no, you you may just ride out this uh, this burning to the ground of social media. You like you might have saved yourself some time, but um, but I, I will tweet out my episodes as my uh, as my sort of public duty. That's the most I do out on there. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'm a general lurker on social media. But uh, I do like to communicate out, and I do get probably about half of my listens come from uh, Twitter. Um, people click on through there. So. No, I, I need to get a Twitter account. ABE has been pushing for that too, <laughs> for people to be, you know, to do it. I, I need to do my share there. I just, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Got to listen to, yeah, listen to Alia and Heggy if they're they want it. Then maybe that's a good reason. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, Scott, thank you again for joining me, and um, I'm gonna talk to everybody soon. <laughs> <laughs>